Black Cats Run podcast, episode 1F of How's Your Wind. Give um, us a follow on Instagram um, if people become interested in engaging in dialogue or suggesting uh, things to further explore or discuss. That will become the space to do that. So we're just continuing directly from what we were talking about, and I said that uh, the reason why this is a separate segment is I'm trying to keep each segment uh, under 60 minutes of recorded time. So we were talking about cortisol, right, adrenaline, and then this idea that discipline, which we're saying historically and culturally has to do with like abandoning self-indulgence, and then we have to separate ourselves from the impulse to feel good. But we're saying that discipline training is something you can execute when you can get into that elevated adrenaline state. And we're saying that elevated adrenaline state isn't maybe good to constantly be going that two, three, or in some cases more times a week because that has an elevated cortisol level associated with that, and that's a stress hormone. And that um, long exposure to uh, high levels of cortisol probably has an adverse psychosocial effect on us as individuals. And I'm totally hypothesizing at this point, could that be something that could feed into or be the cause of burnout, right? Could there be an unsustainable um, engagement with cortisol? Because I exercise all year. And the people I know, uh, many of them do the same thing. And I also know other people who will go and, and train in a more intensive, specific way for a limited period of time, a portion of the year, and then looks like they sort of burn out. And burnout is something that people talk about a lot. And is burnout something that's happening from a cumulative adrenal cortisol relationship? I don't know. I could be totally wrong, but it seems like it's an interesting hypothesis to explore, at least consider, right? Um, the, and, and even if that's not the case, it must be the case that there's something about what people are doing that's leading to that point. And I don't think it's inherent to doing sport or athletics because I am not um, an outlier physically. I, I mean, if I am, I've done a really good job of repressing that level of performance my whole life. And I'm able to exercise throughout the year. Um, you know, my youngest brother would go through what looked like phases of sort of burnout, you know, or injury, which also could be injury, could be something that results from too much discipline um, targeted training. But he's now, I would say, it looks like switched, and he'd probably agree with this, and maybe we'll have him on the podcast at some point. Uh, but he switched to more of a like consistent, just steady engagement with fitness, and that burnout hasn't been there. And a big part of that has been pulling out. Um, and I think in his case, you know, limiting high intensity stuff, you know, and high intensity doesn't mean just zone five and above. I'm defining high intensity in a specific and maybe different way. I'm saying high intensity is paradigms of training that are predicated on getting an elevated um, frame of mind, a cortisol, sorry, not cortisol, a adrenal response, which then we're saying also drives up that level of cortisol. But the other concept that we just left off with at the end of the last episode is that the discipline approach, which is like about staying on the path, the path of discipline and avoiding and like being this sort of um, person who can avoid all of those instant gratifications and in trying to feel good. But if discipline training, 
listen to this, because this might seem a little bit confusing, so I'm going to try to say this carefully, okay? If discipline training is about an adrenal response, and you need that response to do the training, and if discipline training, we're saying historically, has screened out people who can't meet those acts of discipline, right, rather than screening out people who can't meet the level of competitive performance, it puts the performance, performative discipline ahead of actual competitive performance. Aren't we left with this pool of highly adrenal people? And we've heard, probably, some of us have heard the expression in culture of adrenaline junkie. Like there's a notion, there's already a concept out there for people who are addicted to in a, whether that's literal addiction or whether it's just sort of a metaphorical addiction, but are addicted to these adrenal responses, is that really valid? Like then to take that discipline model and say, this is totalist Schumann. Because it seems to me that it's the hedonism of adrenal addiction. And I think that sort of tumbles down all of these ideas. And for us, I was talking about my experience um, in one context of coaching cross-country team, for us, I think, you know, we look back on this in hindsight, and to be full disclosure, I wasn't thinking of it this in adrenal terms at the time, but, like, we basically stayed below that, right? And we looked, adrenaline is one way to feel good. And we looked, I think, for ways to feel good that exist outside of that space. And I think those were more sort of um, permanent things or finding, like, sub-adrenal exercise, exercise that you could do without being totally amped up and keyed up, um, but it was still possible to do that successfully. And when you, know, you consider this difference, I think it really opens the door to a lot of new possibilities of understandings. One of the things I talk to people about now is the idea that uh, performance in a race is a function um, of what we can do in training. And that function is different for different people. You know, I talked about the example of a friend of mine who trains very, has trained at times very close to what they can do in racing. And then uh, there are people such as myself who train well under what they can do in racing. And if I try to access, I mean, so I'm not, I don't consider myself to be a marathoner by any means, but I have sort of stumbled into the reality that I've now done some marathons. Um, you know, and that just, the point here is that with that pace, like for me to even go to marathon pace in training is sometimes feels like extremely difficult, right? But that's something that you're doing, you know, in, in case some cases for, for three hours or more for, for most participants. And even if you're an elite participant, that's still something you're doing for, you know, closer to two hours, you know, it's still two hours plus, right? Unless your name's Elliot Kipchoge. And even then it's still basically, you know, for all intensive purposes, two hours, you know, it's only in the performance sense that we really care that it's slightly under, but like, that's a long time. And then, you know, to try then access that intensity in training, like that's very difficult for me. Um, and I don't know why that is, but in the training sense, per se, but I do see this connection to this adrenaline stuff as maybe one possible explanation 
that when I go to race, I do get that level of arousal and engagement. And all of a sudden, I'm running paces that are ridiculous um, compared to you know what I usually might run in training. Um, and but the Jack Daniels model says that you should basically run marathon pace, you know, for a lot of your training efforts. But for me, I I train below that, well below that, you know, ninety percent of the time. And although I'm not personally an elite performer, you know, I improve my fitness, you know, and I run at a reasonable level, and I race well above what I can do in training. And the other people that I work work with and, and consult with. Um, you know, these athletes, they do the same thing, you know, as we focus on training in a way that feels good. And then it's the same thing. They go to race and they do that. And I think what's really opened up the door for my brother, um, who, you know, this year, um, you know, ran 67 minutes for the half marathon, you know, I think what really opened the door for him is sort of shifting to like, I'm just going to keep things more relaxed. And instead of going out and, you know, drilling this stuff. And he, I, I remember when he was a college athlete, you know, he would go out in the summer and he might run 10 or 11 miles and he'd find this like ridiculously, you know, hilly loops. And he would just be 630 pace no matter what. Like you'd look at the pace graph, you know, after the fact on his GPS and it would just be like a laser beam. It didn't matter if he was going up or down. He just was just cruising at that tempo. And that was when he would sort of build up for six months and get in really good shape and be running 25s uh, for in the 25-minute range for 8K cross-country, five-mile cross-country, and then he would get really injured. Um, and I think people basically, when you're in that high adrenal state, you just push your body beyond what you can do. I mean, you could argue, right, is adrenaline basically this trigger to get the body to like displace its usual reasonable safe limits because there's some sort of extremis, right, that needs to do that. And I don't think training should be inducing, you know, fight or flight level responses, but it does that. And, you know, I recall sitting in class and in the margin of notebooks, like, you know, during if we had a workout in the afternoon, you know, calculating out these paces and I was totally consumed by trying to figure out what was and wasn't possible. And, you know, one interpretation could be that I was a head case, but I, I don't agree with that. I haven't demonstrated that I have a head case subsequently, and I hadn't demonstrated that before, you know, with swimming, um, because the swimming training I always did was, you know, intervals, you know, on a timed interval, and you would just sort of run, swim the rep, right? And then you would finish and you'd look at the clock, and the swim coaches I had weren't really directing or if they were, I wasn't paying any attention to it. They weren't directing me to, you know, hit certain times. It was just like, you know, 50s on 45, 50s on 40, 50s on 50, 50s on a minute, whatever the case may be, you know, 200s on three minutes, you know, whatever. And that actually, I think, ended up being really great for me because it opened the door for me to self-reference. You know, they, I wasn't told to do that, and I don't know that the coaches were thinking like this. And maybe to, if I claim they were, I, maybe I'd be giving them too much credit. But the reality is, um, whether they realized it or not, they created that environment for me. And, you know, I wasn't uh, like, you know, some standout swimmer, but I was one of the best, you know, swimmers um, on the club and in, in high school, um, 
you know, I was would win most of the races. Although we should acknowledge that um, in high the high school swim races were nowhere near the level of the club. The club was real. The real competitive stuff was happening. And as I got into high school, I sort of had transitioned to doing more running. But now we're sort of getting off track. When so to circle back to the significance of the pool workouts is it's just like I was dictating my own effort, you know. So I wasn't trying to squeeze out to a certain level of arbitrary. You know, you must hit this split, you know, and then here's this rest. You know, it was like working within that context. And sometimes probably the workouts were too hard. Um, but like we didn't work out every single day. Um, and I know that some of the more the, the club swimmers who by the time they were in middle school and high school who were really, and, and maybe it was, I don't know how much of it was them and how much of it was their parents, but were really into it. They were driving themselves like to morning practices and, you know, and then doing afternoon practices and they would come to the high school practice, which in high school, we only had pool time like twice a week. Um, which is kind of crazy, right? We worked out twice a week and, uh, like they would be, that would be maybe their third practice of the day. You know, they were just swimming constantly and obviously swimming is different on the body in, in like cycling in some senses and that you can just do so much more work because you don't have that same level of fatigue. And I don't know what happened to most of these people if they kept up with it or if they burnt out or whatever, I kind of got away from swimming after my junior year because I decided that what I really wanted to do was run um, in college and that I needed to do indoor track instead of swimming my senior year. And, you know, which is kind of funny because, you know, I think the reality is I'm probably a much better swimmer than I've ever been as a runner. But, hey, you know, you make your choices and then you live with them. Um, So when, you know, we look at that concept there, right, that's another idea of like feeling good. Right in the pool, I was able to approach it in a way to feel good, but that in the you know running workouts when I have these tempos, it uh, didn't work. I remember a workout I did in college, um, and like one of my personal rules is I didn't work out in spikes or racing shoes. I didn't want to do that, you know, and that was something that I learned from my dad saying that you know those are for racing. You save those for racing. I think that's pretty smart, and I imposed that on my athletes when I coached. Um, a team um, was like racing shoes are for racing because that, to me that's a part of like with the uniform and all of that stuff that's that elevated situation that's when you go and that's when you tap into that um, adrenaline which even if you don't feel like it's an adrenaline rush you know the fact that you're going out and you're just executing stuff you couldn't do like all of a sudden you're running a first lap in 63 and you're like holy crap I'm literally walking this you know this is insane well, that's, that's, you know, that context. That's all those things coming together to make that performance possible. And then, you know, it, it still gets harder later, right? But in a workout, you might be like, oh, my God, I'm trying to run, you know, 68, and I'm, like, you know, dying like a pig. And, you know, that's why, right, you don't want to do that, I think, right? And, you know, I, I think, and um, I have a friend who we can bring on later who hopefully agree to join and I think we can have a conversation with him about like footwear and stuff like this because I know he has some different ideas and we can kind of go more into the arguments for, you know, does footwear matter? Should you wear certain shoes in certain contexts? Is there a benefit to that? But I didn't let my guys uh, do that um, because to me that was a part of like the magic, right, of going to race and you want to protect that energy, right? You don't want to go to that. But it was pretty normal 
um, on my college team for people to work out in their spikes. And uh, our coach was concerned about the outdoor track, the paint on the Mondo being slippery uh, when it was wet, which I never had that experience, but we had, we were doing mile repeats and it was, you know, raining fairly hard. And I showed up with my trainers and he had sent out an email saying to bring uh, your spikes. And I had conveniently missed this email. Um, And, you know, so he sent me back to my dorm to get my spikes. And I think this got me pretty like amped up. I mean, it was a little bit embarrassing and I also didn't really want to do that. And so then like, you know, being a little bit frustrated or, or angry, not necessarily angry at the coach, but just sort of angry with the situation because this isn't the norm that I wanted to have with the training. I ended up going out there and just obliterating the workout um, way beyond. And it was like, that was one of, you know, the few times I did a workout that kind of met the standard in cross country. And, you know, thinking about this adrenal model of discipline, like that was a discipline environment. You know, our environment was definitely a discipline uh, mindset. And I think for our coach, you know, that was probably a core, you know, philosophy of that was like staying on the path of discipline was the way athletes were going to perform. Um, And that, you know, training was sort of a purifying act of discipline. And that was part of what translated right over to that. And, you know, consistently tough athletic competitors, you know, SeaTac was one of his things that we talked about one year. So I'm doing this workout and I'm just going faster and faster and faster. And then I just like, you know, I'm just flying around the track, you know, and it's effortless. And I run the last rep and like, 508. And now we had guys on the team and you wouldn't have thought this would be happening for a school like this, but we had guys on the team who would be closing a mile repeat, you know, five times a mile. And this would have been with, you know, probably a minute to a minute and a half recovery. Um, who would they be closing in like 445, 440, 437? And then they'd go out and some of these guys and they would run 27, 28 minutes for 8k and that just didn't make any sense right how could you execute that in training but i think that's the point of like they're depleting or using a level of energy to do the training that should be reserved for the races and you know bringing out the spikes and stuff like that is a way to sort of tap into that and i think it also the reality is when you train like that the discipline approach it's also more fatiguing right so then you're sort of differentiating between who the training, if the training is effective um, based on how well people can recover from training. And I think it's pretty clear that people recover at different rates in different ways, partly because I think, you know, different people have um, different like subjective capacities to recover. And I also think partly because different people find different like life experiences to be more or less stressful and they're better at creating space to relax and and to eat and to sleep, which is really all where recovery happens. You know, you can, you know, use all other kinds of interventions. I just don't think they work. I think you're kidding yourself. If you want to recover, you got to sleep more and you got to make sure you're eating enough food. Um, I thought it was really interesting to listen to Gustav and Christian talk about um, after their Iron Man, Kona Iron Man experience, talk about how the way that that for them recovery is eating and sleeping. And I thought like, yeah, I totally get that. I totally agree with that. I think that's right on the money. 
And so like staying under that level of adrenal response, like I could have had a training experience where I had stayed under that. And I mentioned earlier how for me, um, and I'm using myself as a, a reference a lot because, you know, that's an experience that I can speak honestly to. And I think in terms of other people's experience, um, my hope would be to have them, you know, come on and, and speak more directly. Um, and so I'm trying not to overly lean on my interpretation of other people's experience. But like I talked about that transition from running, you know, 75, 80, 85 miles of running a week, and then maybe also doing another, you know, four hours of cycling outside, which was, you know, usually pretty rigorous in the summer. And then like, um, transitioning to this discipline space at school in the fall for fall cross country. Um, and then, and this sort of was the prevailing model that continued in the track. Um, and I eventually sort of started running out of gas mentally, um, by the second half of my college experience with sport. But, you know, I would basically stop being able to run well pretty much immediately after coming back to campus and starting the workout routines because I just didn't have the energy to do it. And I couldn't get to that adrenal state. And I'd never had, I didn't have success with workouts in high school. So I had already had a negative association because at a certain point, if you ask somebody to do something that's too hard, like even if they can get that adrenal response to that, like they're still not going to be able to execute that. And I think if you have associative failure with, with intent workouts, like they just start to be seen as negative. And I didn't have a problem with workouts in the pool. And workouts on the bike are sort of okay for me, but running workouts were, were just like a nightmare. And you could look at that from the discipline perspective and say, well, you're being mentally weak or you're, you know, you're not being tough and you need to revise your mindset. But I think the right coaching intervention with somebody like me would have been to be like, okay, you know, I feel this athlete should be able to work out at this level but they just clearly they can't. So let's back it all the way down until we find something they can do because that's going to be more productive for them than going out and bombing the expectation I'm currently setting. And then if they start to execute that level, then maybe you can gradually build that up, right? And then you can, you can get up to that point, right? But we want to remember with training that the benefit of training in the discipline level of intensity, that highly adrenaline-driven workout isn't really that much better than the next best alternative, which is what I'm suggesting, you know, the opportunity cost is to do this alternative of like, am I feeling good, right? Being under control. And rather than trying to access specific race intensity, you just say, I'm doing aerobic things, I'm doing muscular things. And that's an oversimplification, but for the point of comparison, um, we're working with that now. And this sort of distinction of how can we approach and understand what different acts of training are targeted, that's also going to be later podcast topics. So, you know, like I think if we look at this and we can think of in terms of um, what Lydiard says, right? Because Lydiard doesn't just say 100 miles a week. And I think honestly looking at the where he said, where can you find him specifically just sort of like directly emphasizing and saying 100 miles a week, I think is just such a, sad, limited takeaway. And, you know, culturally, people don't read things, right? We hear things about things, and then we talk about them as if we've read them. I would say most people who talk about 100-mile weeks and have an opinion about that 
haven't read um, Running with Lydiard. Okay, and I think if you haven't, and it's a wicked short book, and I, I'm pretty sure it was just, you know, somebody just wrote down things as Lydiard talked about them, and then they just put it together in a book. Like, it's extremely readable. You could probably read the whole thing in 30 minutes, um, but it's really thought-provoking and informative. And if you're interested in also just, like, how has our ideas about this stuff changed over time, it's also just such a cool now um, historical, um, you know, document about the history of training. But he says, finish exhilarated, not exhausted. And I think where is that exhilaration coming from, we can make a further distinction. And you can finish exhausted and exhilarated if you've gone through an adrenal experience. But you'll also get to the point where you just start to finish like totally depleted, right? And we might learn to be satisfied from that. But like exhilarated is like feeling like you should feel pumped up by the time you're done, right? Because you've done something and you're, and you're feeling good and your active training is making you feel better. When we did our training, we did 20 by 200, we do that. Um, and, you know, my brother this year, one of the things that he incorporated that I thought worked really well for him was doing 16 by 200 on, 200 off, continuous. And he sort of settled in at a alternating between 35s and, four, and like 45s or 44s. You know, and maybe thirty, you know, thirty fours maybe for the two hundreds. But he was running basically four miles in around twenty one, twenty thirty to twenty one thirty ish. You know, overall, and with this pace variation, right? And it wasn't a massive session. You know, he could do more, right? But you know, when he asked my opinion about this, you know, I I encouraged in the direction of like do your training so that it's like the minimum necessary to get the benefit you want. Like once you're getting the benefit you want, why would you do more? That's just taking risks. And that's how you, you know, you start to like lose interest because just because something's an adrenaline rush the first time, just because two by 20 minutes is an adrenaline rush the first or second time, that's not something you continually want to do again and again and again. Um, and you might argue, well, you want to do it physiologically because of this perceived benefit. But I'm talking about as an athlete, is that something you continue to want to do again and again and again? You know, and so when we say exhilarated, not exhausted, what that means, in my interpretation, is what you should do um, should feel good every day, right? And we should be feeling good as a result of what you do. Like, I think the value of sport for those of us who do it as just a form of self-esteem and self-actualization who aren't going to make um, our income and our livelihood and support our lifestyles from it, um, but choose to incorporate it into our lifestyle, I think it should be something that feels good or else there's no point in doing it. And I think that chasing down this discipline approach doesn't work for that. And I think that giving up and just collapsing into this like hedonism sort of rejecting and, you know, I'm sort of like secretly bitter. I saw a woman on Instagram suggesting that, you know, uh, the slowest runners should start first because it's not fair that they don't get to finish uh, the courses for the marathon. And I, you know, to me, that's that sort of like hedonism thing where it's like, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, how fast we're going, you know, but to me, it's also showing that like, well, that's like a superiority complex too. If you're not like being more open, it's just that's populist, right? Because more people are slow than are fast. 
And it's not toxic to call things slow or fast. That's just the language, the vernacular we use to differentiate. And you could change those terms and you're still saying the same thing. Right? It doesn't matter. Um, what matters is the actual ideas behind it. And multiple words can be vehicles for the same idea. And we don't want to get trapped in the aesthetics of you know trying to pretend that different language is is changing what people might actually think because that's like you know becomes very Orwellian very quickly I think, but you know when you're saying the fast people start at the back well you're basically still posturing yourself as saying my experience is superior because it's actually in everybody's best interest to start fast to slow because otherwise you're going to have people trampling over everybody else um, and that's going to be a crappy experience for everybody. And unless you think that the value of the experience is that everybody has an experience that's equally miserable, that kind of stuff isn't a good idea, right? So that's not really the way I don't think to feel good either. Um, like feeling good could be a couple different things, in my opinion. Um, I don't know why I'm clarifying this, my opinion. I guess I want to be clear that I'm not sourcing this from somewhere else. These are conclusions that I am I'm reaching or I'm suggesting makes sense to me based on my experience and my assessment of different pieces of data. Um, I think that you did something hard and that allowed you to feel good. You know, we do a long run, I think, and again, my five-sevenths rule, um, probably the first five-sevenths of a long run feels pretty good. And it's really only the last two-sevenths of it that if you're going to be getting really tired and to some extent like the purpose of the long run is to sort of get to that point. But by keeping that so a smaller portion of that is in that period of adversity and, and hardship where you're like, whoa, I'm really using my you know, cognitive power to bear down here and execute and complete this. Well, you're still going to finish and be, that's a good experience. It felt good for a while. Then I got to challenge myself. I got to overcome that. And that's rewarding. Uh, it could be that you did something easy and because it's easy, I relaxed, the act of it felt good. And easy training is productive training. You just do more, right? And that's what's brilliant about it is it's easy and it lets you do more and that's more effective. Um, you look at some of the stuff people are talking about with zone two training and, and mitochondria and how that stuff works and, um, and trying to understand that better and, you know, what is endurance, et cetera. Like that training is happening at a level that's really not, requiring any of that discipline level pain, right? If there is an act of discipline, it's not path of discipline. That's not that formal traditional sense. It's just like habit as discipline, which I'm saying is something that's totally different. It's just like, okay, I want to set aside the time to do that. And it's like, okay, I'm not going to go and do this this morning because I get, I'm doing this and like, it shouldn't be a giving something up because you want to do that. And if you don't want to do these things, don't do them, right? This isn't a proselytization. We're not proselytizing on the subject of endurance sport in this podcast, right? Like if you don't want to do it and you don't want to train and do the activity, that's fine. But you don't have to complicate that space and be like, oh, well, it's toxic and it's bad because it expects people to commit so much time to it. Like I don't expect, I for my part, don't expect you to do anything. I'm not even expecting you to listen to these episodes per se, Right? But I am saying that when you're doing this stuff, if you don't like it, you don't have to do it. Like we don't all have to like the same things. That's fine. But if you are doing it, what I'm arguing is that it's great to recognize that it can be easy because then the literal act of running should feel good and, and comfortable and it should feel better 
Like to me, a lot of times riding and running feels better than sitting on the couch. It feels better even than than walking, right? It's, to me, it's this really awesome state of being. And I, I seek that out and I want to be in that. And then, hey, when it's easy, you can go for longer. So you get to experience feeling good for longer. And hey, that's more effective. And it's also more rewarding because you get to like do these cool things, you know, like exercise twice a day. You know, it's cool to feel like you're accomplishing that. You know, those are different ways to feel good. And then you can also look at some combination of both, right? You know, in training, sometimes you're doing work that requires more heartbeats per minute or more watts. Um, and more muscular force itself can also be exhilarating sometimes, you know, and yeah, you're maybe sort of at some level, you're sort of getting adrenaline, but instead of calling up adrenaline to do it, you're maybe becoming amped up as a consequence of what you're doing. And then you're backing off. You're not tapping out. You're then executing, right? You know, those 200s, but you know, we could have done five more and they could have crushed those, you know, you know, in, in, you know, under 30, they could have run 27, 28. I'm sure some of them could have run 26, you know, which might not sound incredibly fast from a pure speed perspective, but, you know, you'd be doing this after already doing, you know, whatever that was, you know, 35 to 40 minutes of work, right? And so then to be picking up to that tempo, you know, would be pretty significant, but that would have been totally destructive. You know, at that point, you're now you're emptying the tank, right? You're squeezing the sponge, um, too much. And what you want to be doing with that sponge is you, you know, sponge, right? If you, it needs an t- opportunity to absorb, right? And if you just empty the sponge, it's not going to absorb back all the water. You have to be careful and you want to like spend a little bit to try to end up getting more back than you spent if you can. So I think we can reasonably conclude if we circle back to ideas from the very beginning of this um, multi-part episode that the way we talk when we talk about sport does matter. And it's not just about prescribing specific things. And over the course of this episode and the different segments, I've tried to progress to more um, specific strategies um, and practices and applications of training. But this idea that there's a dichotomy of like, here's another dichotomy. What a surprise, American culture. There's another dichotomy that there's a dichotomy between here's sort of the, you know, um, principles or the theory. And then over here you have like the actual workouts. And that I think for a lot of us, we're just like, what's the workout? Tell me the workout. Um, and I've had specific conversations with people where that's like literally what it's been. Like they've just wanted the workout. And at a certain point I've said to them, like, you know, I can give you that, but that's not really the value. Um, there and so we don't really consult anymore about this stuff because you know they're they're looking for something different right and there is that that customer is always right and this is why I don't uh, I don't have a coaching business I've never tried to do that because in that space like you're driven by the market and we talked about how traditions and stuff like that inform that um, and that people expect to have a traditional experience because that's why it's appealing to them in the first place is they need to go out and do that ritual because engaging in those rites of passage is going to create the social value. And that's what the the appeal is. And it's not necessarily about what's doing the most optimal, right? It's I want to train like this, these people who are the top people in cycling in the U S because then I get the social value of being a part of that cohort. 
and one of the athletes I do work with, I say, like, the fact that you're doing stuff that's different what everybody doing, I think that's what's cool and exciting. And I think that, you know, I say that, but, you know, that might be easier for me to say than it might be for them to feel. Because, you know, I think that desire to fit in is pretty strong for a lot of us. So that language, right, is also important because it progresses from there to our decisions about how to train, right? We come up with these ideas as a reflection of the philosophies that we develop and that philosophies are very real and the tangibility of philosophy as in the acts that we do. Pavo Nermi training tells us how Pavo Nermi thought about training because his training is an act of choice or agency or if he worked with other people, right? It's an act of their perspective on that. So the way we talk about sport, it shapes our expectation and it shapes our process and both of these shapes how we feel. Our ability to engage with sport then is a result of what we feel and what we think we will feel. And as I've said, I've been really, you know, um, you know, honest about this because I think that's another thing is we should be more honest about what we're actually experiencing when we're doing sport, what we're actually experiencing in athletes instead of signifying um, what we think is the cool or appropriate thing to say. Um, like there's not, not a lot of room for gamesmanship in training. I don't think that's productive. Um, but like the messaging that you suffer, that's something that we all have probably struggled with at some point. And maybe some of us have gotten over that easily. Maybe some of us have never gotten over that. Maybe some of us are some in some other space with that. But when things don't go well, I immediately question whether I was willing to handle the pain. And I still have that problem. you know. And um, when things go well, I don't find myself saying, wow, I really handled the pain. I'm like, that felt good. That's well how that was supposed to feel. Right, and I'm still trying to work on my own, you know, mentality about this stuff. And I think that's a part of the adventure. You know, I think there's an element that um, there needs to be some sort of a struggle with this stuff, or else it wouldn't be interesting or rewarding. Um, that's a part of feeling good, right? Is overcoming that struggle. But we don't want the process of overcoming that struggle to be like traumatizing or, you know, you know, breaking our minds every year when we need to take all this time off. And I think that, you know, we can't take um, other things or the wrong things as, you know, indicators. We need to look for, you know, and have a better understanding of what kind of are the factual pieces of consideration, um, evidence, um, if you will, when we're trying to do this. And when I say take other things as indicators, I mean, our, you know, our experience is alone, our data points um, not standards, right? And that just because Jim Ryan did blank, you know, doesn't mean that the 400 meter repeat or the quarter mile repeat is this essential ingredient, right? Or just because Roger Bannister was broke four minutes and a mile before John Landy doesn't mean that we should be thinking about Roger Bannister more than we should be thinking about John Landy. And I also think you know, two, even though I, I think talking to me, talking about this stuff seriously is fun, you know, and, and, and that's another thing, right? I'm not claiming there's a theoretically right way to experience this. Like if people want to use the discipline approach, they can. I am making the argument from a uh, performance 
perspective that I just I don't think that the path of discipline model actually produces the best performance. I think that if you can get people to feel good on a regular basis, that's when people are going to do their best and be the most productive. And I think that, again, those his- the historical period in which these ideas were being established was not a period in which we cared about how people felt very much at all, right? And we, and we still see, I've talked about like unions as being this check on unnecessary labor. And like what we see today um, is that like, at least in the United States, like there's strong anti-union sentiment. You know, there's a belief that, you know, unionized labor is um, lazy and unproductive. And, you know, we see kind of that Protestant work ethic-y type mindset there. And, you know, we see also, um, I think, interestingly enough, and I don't think this is maybe true to the whole history of unionization, but I think certainly since the sort of rising association with conservatism and uh, Christianity, that, like, you know, unions and, and people not embracing labor, like, is sort of something that, you know, at, at one division of conservative Christianity, like, is definitely falls into that anti-union mindset, too. And I'm making a generalization um, to make a point, of course. But, so, like, we're doing this for fun, but that's, like, what's fun, though, is to really think about this stuff and try to make sense of it. And, like, the hedonism, like, no, fun is not thinking about these things. I don't agree with that. Because if you're claiming that, you know, if you're a a gravel athlete who has an Instagram following and you're making content about how you're promoting the exclusive, meaningful experience for everybody and you're saying how it's fun and it doesn't matter and we don't need to think about this and we don't need to think about that, I want you to know that you're dictating to me, in a sense, without realizing it, you're putting the message out there to me that, like, hey, like, you aren't having fun by doing it this way. And I don't know that that's what, you know, I'm speaking of the hypothetical, you know, person here, right? I don't know that's what the hypothetical you gravel um, person is meaning to say, but I think it's an interesting effect of um, the impact of how, right, that you are choosing to talk about that stuff. And so the choices then that we make when we talk about this stuff are impactful and not opening this up to thinking um, in these serious ways, I think is wrong. And I think being serious is where it gets fun. That's what's fun about it because you get to get competent at it and you get to have the cool experiences as a consequence of that. Um, and like games, right? It's all a game, faster or slower, it's all a game. And games need some sort of a rules or structure to it. And that's kind of what, in a sense, we're trying to figure out here. Like what are the best rules or structure that we can apply. But it's also true that um, games aren't fun when people are poor losers. And sometimes this stuff isn't going to go well, and that's okay too, right? Um, for the majority of us, isn't going to go well, right? But, so, but being miserable, like when we don't get what we want in terms of the experience, is pointless. And if we're miserable because we can't get what we want because the discipline model isn't working for us, and even the people who the discipline model are working for are probably being limited by that and could probably be having a better experience and better performance if they got away from that. 
you know, and got out of that like adrenaline cortisol cycle that I'm hypothesizing is driving that. Um, I think that like we can have more fun playing these games, right? When we can change our attitude and be like the point of the game is to play the game, right? Like again, making puzzles, like it's rewarding to finish the puzzle, but what do you do if you like puzzles? Like you go and find another puzzle, right? And that's what this is, is this is a puzzle that we're trying to figure out. And when we sort of feel like we figured something out, that doesn't mean we stop thinking about it. We keep thinking. And sometimes we circle back to things and we reevaluate that. And that's rewarding because then that means that there's always new things to try. There's always new, new puzzle pieces to put together and try to see what that, that creates. And I like the idea that my dad had, you know, used to talk about, um, and I say used to, I guess he just hasn't mentioned it recently. It's not like he refuses to talk about it anymore. But, you know, brought this up in the past of like, when you're training, it's really cool because it's like you're in the wilderness. And when you're in the wilderness, you don't really know where you are. And you don't really have a reference relative to other things. And you're just you, doing you and you're doing your thing. And then races are so exciting because you get to go out and you come out of the wilderness and you get to see what you created, Right. And like, that's, I think, the value of like a real liminal space. Like, that's the real rite of passage that we want is to go out and see that we created something and that we express that by going out there and challenging ourselves. And I've come to recognize that like, I'm not going to inevitably progress and that things are going to happen, you know, and I'm going to get slower and I'm going to get faster and that the, the art of the sport of being an individual being in these individual sports or being in endurance sports, the art of the sport is to go out and how can you express the best version of what you created at that time? I think that's what we're trying to do. You know, and whether you're elite or whether you're a highly competent amateur or whether you don't really know where you fall because maybe you feel that you're not good enough to identify with it all, it doesn't matter. Um, I think the stuff applies to all of us and trying to make better sense of training and better sense of the experience of being an athlete and try to do this in different ways. And hopefully I can drum up some different people. I know uh, friends and buddies of mine to come on here and help to expand the conversation. That's what we're trying to do. So if you like this episode, you know, follow along Wherever you're listening, you feel like giving it a rating, go ahead, give it a rating. And again, um, I encourage people to check out, uh, not that there's much on there, but, you know, join or join, follow the Instagram, um, because then that can be a space where we can kind of develop dialogue and, and get more ideas of what to do with the podcast. Thanks for listening. And uh, we're going to start working on and, and come out with episode two soon enough.